Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua? And this morning, Joshua chapter 7 is really what we're going to look at. We began looking at it last week. And as we said last week, as we come to Joshua 7, Israel is coming off of their first and probably greatest victory in their conquest of Canaan. Again, Jericho was the strongest stronghold of the enemy. And at this point, now it lay in ruins. And I think this gave the fighting men of Israel a false sense of invincibility, which led to their first and only defeat in what God promised would be a land of victory. Remember now, the Bible says that pride goes before a fall. And the conquest of Canaan lasted about seven years. And during that time, Israel only lost one battle. And that was the Battle of Ai. And the question we began to look at last week was why? What happened to take these guys, these, these warriors, from victory to defeat so quickly, seemingly overnight? Well, we said the answer to that question is actually found in verse 1 of chapter 7, where we read, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. God had told them before they went into battle against Jericho, they were not to take any of the spoil. It all belonged to God. Well, they went into the battle of Jericho and God gave them a tremendous victory. But one man named Achan saw some things and he really wanted them. I mean, he had a strong desire. So he took them and hid them in his tent. Well, the next town on the road to conquest was Ai. Now, Ai was not a very big town. It was only about 12,000 people. Jericho was really a tough town. It was a stronghold of a city. Here, Ai is kind of small, insignificant, about 12,000 people. So you figured out, out of that number, how many fighting men do you have? 3,000 maybe? So Joshua sends some spies in. They check out the town, come back. and said to Joshua, don't even bother sending the whole army in. We just got done beating up the biggest kid in the block. This, this town's going to be nothing. Just give us about 3,000 guys. We'll go in there and beat up on them and take the victory, and then you know we'll come back here. And so Joshua said, all right, fine, sounds good. So Joshua let the men of... Uh, the uh, warriors of Israel go uh, with a small contingency of men compared to the whole nation. And as we read in verses 2 through 5, as they went up against the men of Ai, the men of Ai rose up and began to, to beat Israel. In fact, 36 guys were killed, and the rest of Israel fled. Well, to say this was a shock is an understatement. I mean, Joshua was completely dumbfounded. He was absolutely stunned at what happened. And so what does he do? Well, he begins to blame God, okay, in his dismay. And so we read how in verse 6, he tore his clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back on or before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off your name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Lord, now you've done it. Now you've done it. When the enemy gets wind of this, when they find out we were beaten by this little town, man, they're all going to be emboldened. They're going to surround us. Wipe us out, and then who's going to represent you? See, you've done it now, Lord. See, now, at this time, Joshua does not know what Achan has done yet. 
In his mind, all he feels is that God has let them down. God has not come through in his promises. God has not kept his word to his people when he promised to give them victory over the nations in the promised land. It's amazing how quick we are to impugn the character of a holy, righteous, and perfect God instead of taking inventory of our own lives to figure out, well, you know what? This is unlike God to act this way or to abandon me in my time of need. Um, What have I done maybe that has caused God to act this way? And look, I'm not trying to say that every time something goes wrong in your life, it's your fault. There's a sin in your life somewhere. I'm not saying that. You know, you could be like Job. Job was a righteous guy, and here comes the enemy attacking Job, and God was using it to, to teach Job some, some lessons, I think. But the idea is that you know, we might not be doing anything wrong in going through the worst crisis of our life. Sometimes God is allowing the enemy to get at us to keep us humble. Remember Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, how that because of all the revelations God gave to Paul, that God also allowed a messenger of Satan to buffet him to keep him humble. So I'm not saying that it's always our fault when things go wrong. But look, it's important that we don't assume we haven't done anything wrong. It's important that we take a little time and we seek the Lord and ask Him, as David did in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 4, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lord, is there something in me that's wrong? He said, Search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the right path. So that's a very important thing, too. Look, if Joshua, I'm convinced, if Joshua had sought the Lord before the battle of Ai, I believe God would have revealed to him that there was sin in the camp, that there was sin in the camp of Israel, and until it was dealt with, God would no longer be with them in battle nor give them victory. But see, Joshua, I think, was also a little flushed with victory and overconfident. And so instead of seeking God, as he had done with the battle of Jericho, I mean, why seek God over Ai, right? The big problems, sure, I'll seek God. The little things, man, I don't need God for this. Well, you want to make the little problems into big problems, then just go ahead and wing it, all right? Just do whatever you think. If Joshua had humbled himself before the Lord and not been so hasty and gone ahead and just did what he thought was right here instead of seeking God for guidance, well, when things went south, as they say, he would not have blamed God for the problems that Israel experienced. I mean, we often do this again. Joshua did what many of us do. We rush into a situation. We plan, you know, we make our own plans. We figure out how we're going to handle it. We rush in and things blow up in our face. And then we want to turn around and blame God. And so oftentimes happens, Joshua's self-pity that he expressed in verse 7 led him to question the goodness and faithfulness of God. And that's always wrong. I mean, even Job, who found himself going through an incredibly difficult trial, all his kids died in one day. All his possessions and his servants were stolen and killed. And yet he falls on his face and worships the Lord, saying, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, Job did not sin with his mouth nor charge God foolishly. Unfortunately, Joshua did not act like Job. He did charge God foolishly. He fell on his face and felt sorry for himself and basically impugn the character of God. It was God's fault. God was unrighteous. God did not keep his word, and etc. Well, God responds. In verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. 
For they have even taken some of the accursed things and are both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed, doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Now, as we've already pointed out, if you do any study of the book of Joshua, uh, and in particular chapter 7, the commentators will offer a variety of reasons for Israel's defeat at the hands of the men of Ai. It seems that the two, the two things that they all point to was, first of all, overconfidence, and we've already talked about that. Israel got cocky, as demonstrated in the fact that they didn't think they needed the whole army. Well, why do you, don't you think you need the whole army? Because we're tough. We just beat Jericho. Overconfidence. That'll bring you down every time. Pride goes before a fall, right? And a haughty look before destruction, the Bible tells us. But they also point to the second thing that they all agree on, prayerlessness. And I agree with that, too. If Joshua had taken the time to pray for the battle of Ai like he had prayed for the battle of Jericho, again, I don't think they would have found themselves in this mess. And those are two important and valid things that we could look to to say, well, you know, in part, I think that overconfidence and prayerlessness did have a hand in this defeat. However, the third and the main reason that God gets for Israel's defeat was disobedience. See, that was the main thing. In verse 11, God said to Joshua, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Now again, this gets back into something that God had told Joshua and the men of Israel before the battle of Jericho. If you back up to chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, we read, as God is telling them now, on, before they were to go to battle against Jericho, God says to them, and by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, this gets into something that God had said to, Joshua, to Moses before they ever entered into the promised land. And God said through Moses that the first fruits of the land belong to God. The first fruits of their crops, of their livestock, and also of the spoil of the conquest of the land, it all belonged to God. It was holy. That's what the word consecrated in verse 19 means. It was consecrated to the Lord. It was holy. It belonged to God, and it was to be brought into the treasury of the Lord. Now, after the battle of Jericho, every other, every other city they beat, they were able to gather the spoil and, and um, divide it among themselves. But the first fruits belonged to the Lord. And the idea behind the accursed things actually is a reference to the devoted things. Those things that belong to God, that were devoted to God. Here's the idea. If you steal what belongs to God, God is saying, if you steal what belongs to me and take it to your house to use for you, it becomes an accursed thing. It's holy to me. If you rob me and use it for yourself, it will become a curse to you and your household. And that was something that God clearly said in Deuteronomy 7, verse 26. He said, nor shall you bring an abomination into your house lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall, uh, you shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. 
Now, Joshua doesn't know what Achan has done at this point. All right? He doesn't know that Achan has disobeyed God and brought something that was dedicated to God into his own tent, which made it a curse not only to him, but to everybody. Joshua feels God has let them down. So he's on his face wallowing in self-pity, blaming God basically for Israel's problem. Well, the Lord rebukes him in verses 10 to 12 by basically saying, you know, what is the meaning of this kind of behavior, Joshua? What do you think you're doing laying on your face blaming me? You don't know better than to question my character and my faithfulness. Look, I haven't let Israel down. They have sinned against me. See, again, back in the wilderness, when Moses was still alive, God through Moses had said in Deuteronomy 11, verses 22 and 3, listen to what God said. For if you, speaking to Israel now, about their eventually entering into the promised land and beginning to do battle against the nations, for if you carefully keep, listen, all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Do you see that this is a conditional promise? In fact, God reaffirmed that or repeated it in chapter 1 of this book, when God said, if you do this, 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 and this, then I will do, and he talked about how God would give them victory. Here, he says the same thing. If you as a people will carefully keep all the commandments which I command you to do, not some of them or most of them, but all of them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to hold fast to him, to cling to him, then God says, I will drive out these nations from before you. I will give you victory over mightier nations than you are. And I think this promise pertains to us as well as God's people today. I'm convinced that if we will do all that God has commanded us to do, if we will draw close to him, if we will love him above all else, if we will cling to him and, and live for him, I'm convinced God is going to drive out every enemy from our life that tries to hinder our walk with God, whether they be enemies of the flesh whether they be emotional, and many people wrestle with depression or anger or worry or something else, I'm convinced that God is going to give us victory, victory over the bad habits in our lives, victory over the bad thoughts, over the bad uh, attitudes, whatever it might be that's hindering our walk with God and possessing our spiritual promised land, I'm convinced that we will just do what God has said here. Stop playing games, get serious, draw close to him, Take his word out every day. Read what he has said. Obey all that he wants us to do. I'm convinced there's no enemy that's going to stand before us. His power will be upon us because he wants to give us victory. But look, this is what I want you to see here. This, I believe, is the whole focus of the chapter and the main lesson I think the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us through it. And I'll tell you this. As I was going through all the commentaries, and I use, oh gosh, I must use 15 or more commentaries when I do a study. It's amazing to me how many of the commentators either ignored this altogether or just gave it a little passing mention. To me, this is the crux of the passage. This is, I think, what God is wanting us to take from this story. Listen, it was only one man who violated God's command. It was only one man who sinned by taking what belonged to God, and his name was Achan, who, by the way, his name means trouble, all right? And he certainly was. 
And yet God said in verse 11, listen, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. One man failed to keep God's commandments. One man brought sin into the camp of Israel, and yet the whole nation was held accountable by God. Now, I know people, when they read this, would go, wait a minute. I don't think that's fair. Why would God punish everyone for one man's sin? I don't think that's fair. Let me ask you this. If your hand shoplifts, is it fair that your whole body goes to jail? You say, well, that's ridiculous. My hand is part of my body. It can't be punished separately. See, now you're beginning to understand what God's doing here with regard to Israel. See, God looked at Israel back then as a unit. He redeemed them out of Egypt as one people. He made a covenant with them as a single community. In God's eyes, even though the whole nation was made up of many members, they were still one unit, a single entity that he blessed as a whole and held accountable as a whole. And this is exactly how God sees his people, the church, under the new covenant today. As many individual members that make up one body, the body of Christ. Paul could not have made this any clearer than he did in 1 Corinthians 12, when he said, first of all, in verse 12, For as the body is one, and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. He's using the physical body to represent the spiritual body of Christ. He said, look, our physical body has many members, but they're all, it's all one body, right? Just like the body of Christ is made up of many individual members with many different kinds of gifts and callings, yet we are all one body in God's eyes. Verse 20, Paul says, Now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Verse 26, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You see, in the story of Ai, we see what happened when sin entered into the camp of Israel. The whole nation, the entire community, became vulnerable to the enemy. In fact, in the beginning of verse 12, God said, Therefore the children of Israel, listen, could not stand before their enemies. I believe the same thing is true for a church that is either ignorant of the sin that has infected it or knows it's there but refuses to deal with it. I think it's the same thing. The same principles apply. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that if there is any sin in any church, that those churches cannot be blessed by God. We're all sinners saved by grace, right? This is not talking about the, the bad habits that you wrestle with and pray about and want God to deliver you from. It's not talking about the struggles with lust or with greed or something else that you wrestle with but really want God to take from you. We all wrestle with sins of the heart and so on. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is those open, blatant sins that churches know are there but are not dealing with, or maybe they don't know are there yet, but God is going to reveal it. I'm talking about churches that let people live together out of wedlock in the name of love and tolerance. Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians 5. There was a guy in the church of Corinth who was living with his own stepmother. Everybody knew what was going on. The Greek implies it was common knowledge to everybody, not just in the church, but in the whole community. Why weren't they dealing with it? We don't know. Uh, they, they were kind of a withered church, like kind of a tolerant, kind of a, 
uh, one of those churches that just kind of, you know, in the name of love, looked the other way. And Paul says, I'm shocked that you're letting this go on in your church. Don't you know that God cannot bless you if you don't deal with this sin in your midst? It could involve something like that, open, blatant sin. With regard to immorality, it could also involve, you know, some in the church who are involved in maybe illegal activities. And this doesn't have to be gang-banging drug dealers. It could be other things, white-collar crimes, things like that that you know about, that churches look the other way with regard to, because the person involved may be the biggest giver in the church. Can't turn in my biggest tither. It's between him and God anyways. I don't have to get involved. Look, there are things that go on in churches that we're not even aware of. How does God make us aware that something is going on in our church? Well, I'll tell you how it's happening in our church. And we have dealt with similar situations like I just mentioned in in years past. But there are times in our church's history where, I don't know, God has revealed to several of us that something just isn't right. Um, It's nothing you can point to. It's nothing that's tangible. But there's a discernment that that we get. And maybe you've experienced this where there's like a, a dark cloud hovering over the church. Um, something's not right. I mean, it's, it feels like something is wrong. Something is, is holding back God's blessings. We don't know what it is, so we should start praying. Lord, if there's sin in the camp, will you please reveal it to us? And sure enough, and uh, more than once, uh, it's manifested itself in, in a, a little group of critical-hearted folks that started to invite people over to the house, you know, and secretly and for dinner, but secretly were kind of then, you know, trying to draw people away from the church because these people were unhappy or critical-hearted. Or, and they, they, they gathered a whole little group within the church that we didn't even know about that were against us now. It's a cancer in the body. And God will not lead new people into a church that is sick, lest they become infected too. And as soon as God has revealed it to us, we have confronted these folks. And 99.9% of the time, instead of getting right with God, they just leave the church. But you know how you felt right after this, these folks left? It was like the heaviness was lifted. The sun came out. Uh, it was like the joy returned. You felt God was with you again. The church was, uh, God's hand was upon us again. But listen, if a church refuses to deal with sin, when God brings it to the attention of the leadership, well, God will remove his hand of blessing from that church and will break fellowship with them. Didn't God say this to Joshua basically at the end of verse 12? He said, Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. As we have said many times over the years, it's a healthy body that can purge itself of the toxins and impurities within it. But any physical body that's not functioning properly or is too weak to purge itself of the poisons that have invaded it Well, that physical body is going to grow weaker and weaker until it eventually dies. And I think the same thing is true with the church. I have seen it happen where churches refuse to deal with sin. They let it come in and they refuse to deal with it. It's uncomfortable. We don't want people to leave the church. We just want to minister. So, you know, we're going to, in the name of love, we're not going to really deal with this sin. We're going to just keep whatever and loving them and so on and so forth. And it breeds, it, it spreads Because other people begin to have a lax attitude towards sin then too in the church. And eventually that group of believers, that church grows weaker and weaker until it finally dies. Now by saying that, it doesn't mean it goes out of existence. And sometimes it even grows numerically even though it's dead. 
As somebody has said to me, well, how can a church be dead if it's still growing? And as somebody has pointed out to me, even cemeteries grow. So God reveals the problem. Joshua, it's not me. You should know better, son. It's Israel. They have disobeyed me. And now God gives the command in how the problem is to be resolved or fixed. He said in verse 13, Get up, Joshua, sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. They were going to be casting lots, is what they were doing. And the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. All right, the next morning, verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarites, and he brought the family of the Zarites man by man, and Zabdi was taken, and he brought the household, his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, And make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment. Now let me just stop for a second. It's amazing how we can sin if we don't see things properly. What do you mean? What did God say with regard to the the loot? Of the city of Jericho. He said it's what? It's consecrated to me. Didn't he? Here Achan calls it spoil. It wasn't spoil. Spoil is the reward for battle that soldiers received. This was not spoil. This was holy. These things. See Achan was not even looking at the situation properly. As we often do. If people in the church would look at another man or woman, somebody they're not married to, and instead of coveting, which is a strong lust and desire, they would see them as holy. What does that mean? They are dedicated to another person. And God has ordained that that union in marriage is absolutely holy. It is forbidden to mess with. Well, maybe they would understand a little bit why it's off limits. You start thinking... In the terms of spoil, something I can have if, you know, I conquer that person. Uh, Wrong. Wrong idea. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw the spoils, a beautiful Babylonian uh, garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, listen to the progression of sin out of Achan's own mouth. I saw... I coveted them. The word covet means to strongly desire or to lust after. I coveted them and took them. I saw, I lusted, I took. That's always the progression of sin. And by the way, you can't help the first look. Temptation is not a sin. 
All right? Temptation is not a sin. You can't help some good-looking girl or some good-looking guy coming across your field of vision. You know what? You get one look and you're, that you're not responsible, as long as it's not a long, leering look. <laughs> Temptation is not a sin. That first look is not a sin. It's that second, third, fourth, and whatever. That's, that's the sin now. That's where the lust comes in. And then from that point, then people often then move to action and take. So that's what I did, he said. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. So Achan's sin has now been discovered. And now we read in verses 24 to 6, the consequence determined. It says, Then Joshua... And all, the, uh, all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garments, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all he had, and brought them to the valley of Achor, which basically means trouble. Achan's name means trouble. The valley of Achor means trouble. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So listen. All Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They weren't burned to death alive, but they were stoned first, and then their bodies were burned. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, or the Valley of Trouble, to this day. I want you to notice something. I want you to see that. God held the entire nation responsible, not just Joshua, to purge out the sin from their midst. All Israel took up stones, right? And all of them moved to wipe out Achan and his family. It wasn't just Joshua or the leadership's responsibility. Now, let me just say this. There are many, when they read the story, they're absolutely shocked by the harshness of the punishment that God imposed on Achan and his family. But don't forget this. Because of this man's sin, it cost the lives of 36 men. And he still didn't confess his sin until he was forced to. We don't know how much longer he would have gone in silence and how many more men would have died in battle if God had not forced the issue and confronted him with his sin, right? You see, we've got to see things in the right light. So often, I think it's hooked to our fallen nature, which is rebellious, so often we're so busy feeling sorry for the rebel, for the troublemaker, for the guilty party, that we neglect to see how much the innocent suffered because of this man's greed and selfishness. Let's not forget that 36 wives have been robbed of their husbands. 36 families containing who knows how many children have been robbed of their fathers. How many moms and dads and aunts and uncles and siblings have been robbed of loved ones because of one man's sin? Don't feel sorry for Achan. Don't feel sorry for this man who brought innocent men to their deaths. And I know some would say at this point, yes, but why did his family have to die with him? What wrong did they do? Where did he hide all this stuff at? Where? In his public storage locker down the street? Where did, where did he hide all this stuff at? In his tent, right? His family lived in that tent. They knew what he had done. They were complicit in his sin. They knew what he did. 
And they were really accessories to this crime, you might say. So they were not innocent. But also, I want, I want you to see something else. Remember this. Israel was at a very crucial point in her conquest of the land. And so God dealt very decisively with those who brought this sin into the nation to weaken them against their enemies. It's reminiscent of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, right? Chapter 5, when the church was just starting out and was at a crucial point in its conquest of the enemy's territory through the gospel. And how that they were guilty of bringing the first sin into the church. You say, what was it? Well, they lied about not giving something to God. You see, the church was born on the Feast of Pentecost, which was one of the three major feast days of the Jewish calendar year of religious feast days. So pilgrims came from all of the known world to Jerusalem on these three feast days, Pentecost being one of them. It took place in the late spring, early summer. Well, the church was born. Peter preached the dynamic message, spirit-filled message, 3,000 men plus women and children got saved. They're brand new Christians. What do, you, what do you do with them now? You can't let them go back to their country of origin. There's no churches there to disciple them. So they needed to stay in Jerusalem so the apostles could teach them about their faith, right? Well, this created a real problem for the folks in Jerusalem because there wasn't enough housing in the hotels and motels and stuff like that. You know, all the motel sixes were packed. So what the people did was they said, look, you guys come stay with us. They opened their homes and all the Christians opened their homes and these folks were living with them. Well, again, there was a hardship because these people weren't working. They had left their jobs to come to Jerusalem. So these folks had needs. They, they, all of a sudden, the church had the extra burden of, of supplying food and all for these people. So what happened? Well, it says that all the Christians who owned property or had any money would give it to the apostles to dole out. If they had a piece of property and they, they sold it and they brought the money to the apostles and said, look, you take this money and you help the, the, these folks and make sure they have stuff to eat and so on. Well, Ananias and Sapphira had some property. They sold it and brought part of the money to the apostles and said they had given it all. And Peter said to them, did you give all the money for the land you sold to the Lord? And it was um, Ananias who was there. Sapphira was out. His wife was out somewhere at this time. And Ananias said, yes, we've given it all to the Lord. And Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You haven't lied to men but to God. Nobody told you to sell your property. And even after you sold it, nobody told you that you had to give the money to us. But because you said you gave all the money and you lied about it, God is going to judge you. And Ananias fell down dead on the spot. The young guys came in and took him out and buried him. Three hours later, his wife comes in. Peter confronts her and says, look, did you sell that piece of property of yours for such and such money? And she said, yes, for such and such. He said, I can't believe that you both conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit. The same feet that carried your husband out, they're going to carry you out. And boom, she dropped dead on the spot. What did that do in the church? Instant purification of anybody contemplating not doing things right. See, this was a very crucial point in the church's existence. If the devil could torpedo it right at the beginning, before it got strong and spread, he would have accomplished his goals. God had to keep the church pure. I mean, thank goodness we're not living in the first century, right? I mean, every time we'd sing, take my silver and my gold, not a mite what I would hold, there'd be carnage everywhere in the church. People would be dropping like flies. And see, that's kind of the point. People read that story about Ananias and Sapphira and say, look, what they did wasn't so bad. We've all lied. I mean, why did God have to kill them? That seems harsh, excessive, cruel, unloving. I think God acted unjustly. I don't think God acted righteously towards them. 
Folks, all I can say to that is we've gotten so used to sin that we no longer understand that all sin is punishable by death. God said the soul that sins shall surely die. And the fact that God hasn't wiped us all out for our sins is a testimony of his goodness, his love, his grace, and his mercy. Look, the issue isn't why does God uh, God judge some for their sins and take their lives. The real issue is why doesn't God judge all of us when we sin? It's not why did they have to die. It's why does God let me live? That's the real issue. We're not seeing this thing properly, right? Again, like Joshua, we want to blame God with wrongdoing. Instead of saying, Lord, wow, you judged them for lying. I've lied many times. The fact that you haven't struck me dead is a testimony to your mercy in my life. So I don't want to push it, Lord. Not because I don't want to die, I, I don't want to grieve your heart. That's the real motivation, obviously. But look, God doesn't deal with all sinners like this. In fact, by nature, God is much more prone to show mercy and grace than he is to bring judgment. You remember the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8? You know the law of Moses said that anyone caught in the act of adultery was to be stoned? They brought this woman to Jesus, the, the Pharisees did, said that we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law says to stone her. What do you say? Trying to trap Jesus. The whole thing was a setup. First of all, if you caught her in the act of adultery, where's the guy? The law said they both should be stoned. See, it was a setup. They knew this woman was a little loose in her morals, and they set her up. And So now they're going to bring this to Jesus and put him you know, in a difficult place, right? Now the law said that she should be stoned. But Jesus said, woman... I don't accuse you, but go and sin no more. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? And, of course, as we learn in the law, it's not just the physical act of adultery or murder that God looks at. It's the heart. So if I hate or I lust, it's the same thing in God's eyes as committing murder or adultery. See, the very fact that God doesn't kill all of us on the spot is a testimony of his grace and his mercy. We're so busy because God singles out some once in a while to show us, look, Because I'm a good and gracious and merciful and loving God, you think I'm soft on sin. Don't make that mistake. Every once in a while, God singles out some people and says, you know what, I need to make an example of you. Was that fair? Again, you want what's fair? If we get what's fair, we're all dead. But every once in a while, God, who is sovereign and can do what he pleases, will single some out and say, you know what, I'm going to need to make an example out of you. And maybe they have been given many opportunities to repent. And they've rebelled and rebelled. and I don't know what the deal is with everybody. I just know that once in a while, God will judge some of us to teach the rest of us that his anger still burns hot against sin. He is not soft on sin. He does not take our sin lightly, any sin, because he is a holy and righteous God. And sometimes along the highway of human history, he will single out people to be like warning signs to the rest of us as we travel down the highway of life to recognize we serve a very gracious and merciful God. So much so that we begin to think that maybe he doesn't care that I sin. I mean, after all, nothing's happened to me so far. And God is saying, don't make that mistake. Don't count the goodness of God for weakness, the Bible says. Don't think that God, because he's so merciful and gracious, don't ever think he's soft on sin. Don't ever think he looks the other way or winks at you when you sin. Look, all I can say this morning is this. If you are here this morning and you are involved in an accursed thing, what does that mean? That you are living 
in sin in some way. You're doing something God has forbidden. Listen to the words of Joshua in verse 19 where he said, basically, I'll paraphrase, I beg you, give glory to the God of Israel and make confession to him and do not hide your sin any longer. Because you push the grace of God every time you continue on in that sin. And there may come a point when God will say, enough is enough. My grace is done. And now I have to bring judgment. But, Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Look, we're done, but I really want to tie this up with this, with this principle, I believe, the Holy Spirit is teaching us here. I think the great lesson that God is teaching us here about Christian victory is that, first of all, no individual Christian can sin without affecting the whole church in some way. We are a body. We are a unit. God often blesses us as a unit, and he often holds us accountable for sin as a unit. Paul the Apostle said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let me paraphrase. Even a little sin will spread and corrupt the whole church if not dealt with. We are all accountable to God to police our ranks. And I'm not talking about being the thought police and, you know, what is this person? No, I'm talking about open, blatant sins in the body. We are all accountable to God to police our ranks and deal with sin in the body, just like Israel. This is not a leadership issue, just like it was not a Joshua and Israel leadership issue. God expected the whole nation to all rise up and deal with the sin in their midst, just like he expects the church. And I'll tell you what, I can't tell you how many times, and we haven't had a lot of these situations over 30 years, where somebody in the body was living in sin and we confronted them in love and they wouldn't repent, they wouldn't turn from their sin. So eventually, what do you do? You have to put them out of the church, right? You have to take the sin out of the camp. Inevitably, what happens? We have some dear saints that want to find fault with us. Well, how could you do that? How loving was that? All right? I mean, come on, we're supposed to be love, you know? Jesus is all about love. And you, how loving was it for you to kick somebody out of the church? Look, I haven't kicked anybody out of the church. They've refused to repent. Do you know what happens a lot of times? These folks then will meet with these other people and kind of come around them and kind of say, you know, that was really wrong what the leadership did to you, you know, and having dinner and, and kind of, you know, trying to make this person feel that they were wronged in some way. And it's sad because you're just encouraging the rebel and finding fault with God and the leadership for doing what God has told us to do. Look, I, I think that AI, spiritually speaking, is being replicated in thousands of churches all across this nation. We see churches that have allowed sin in the camp and are really unwilling to purge it from their midst. This has made them, listen, vulnerable to the enemy's attacks, who is trying to wipe out marriages, families, who is trying to kill their members with alcohol and drugs and, and anything else the devil can get his hands on. These are churches where instead of enjoying God's blessing and victory over the enemy, they instead only know humiliation and defeat. All I can say is it just speaks to the times that we're living in, the end times. The Bible says that even in the church, people wouldn't be thinking right. They would want their ears tickled. They would gather to themselves people that would teach them what they want to hear, not what God wants them to know. How little we really understand the concept, let alone the importance of true holiness when it comes to victory and the fear of the Lord when it comes to sin today. No wonder the church is so weak. No wonder families are crumbling and marriages are being destroyed. The enemy is having his way. No wonder that so many Christian men are in bondage to pornography or alcohol or drugs or some other thing, men and women. 
Look, at Paul said these things in the Old Testament were written for our what? Learning. May we learn the lessons well that they teach, especially here in Joshua 7. Or we will reap the inevitable consequences that Israel experienced at Ai. Consequences that will affect us, our families, our churches, and ultimately our nation, just like we're seeing today. Let me ask you this. Is the enemy having his way in your marriage or in your family? Are there accursed things in your home? Have you allowed into your house things that God has forbidden? You know, in Acts chapter 19, when the people of Ephesus started getting saved, it says they started bringing to the town square all their books on black magic and all the witchcraft stuff and their magic amulets. And what did they do? They piled them up and burned them all. They purged their houses of that evil junk. And you know what it says then? The word of God grew and prevailed mightily. I just got back from California where I was talking to some Christians out there. This one church, all the young girls are reading the vampire novels. I was appalled by that. Oh, it's nothing, they told me. It's a love story. It's an evil love story. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather what? Expose it. That's one example. I mean, a television set in your living room, that's a portal to the world. And you determine what parts of the world get in and what parts don't get in. And when Christians have all kinds of movie channels that let all kinds of filth into their homes, to me, that's an accursed thing, entering into the house. How can God bless your family? Look, we need to take holiness seriously, guys. Oh, you're putting me under the law. No, I'm not putting you under the law. Your works are not going to earn you God's favor of one iota. And he's going to love you regardless of what you do or don't do. But we're talking about victory now, right? We're talking about seeing our kids walking with God and our marriages healed. And our church is all that they should be for the Lord. This is where we live, guys. And we will never see victory in the church or in our families, in our nation, if we don't take seriously as God's people the lessons that Israel learned the hard way at Ai. I don't know about you, but a wise man or woman learns from the mistakes of others so that they don't have to make the same mistakes themselves. That's the lesson of Ai for all of us. Learn from their mistakes so that you don't have to make the same mistakes and learn these lessons the hard way. Because we will learn these lessons one way or another. May God give us the grace to learn them from the mistakes that others have made, that we not have to make those same mistakes, that God may bless us and use us and keep his hand upon us and all the work he's called us to do. The time is short. and Jesus is coming back soon. I want to see our family saved. I want to see another revival in our nation. It has to start in our own homes and our own hearts. We got to get them right with God first. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you so much for the lessons that you're teaching us here in the book of Joshua, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't sanitize these stories to make your people look good. You just presented it the way it was that we might learn, Lord. We're not, your, your people are not super saints. We are not infallible. We make mistakes. When we do, they become lessons for others not to do what we have done. And Lord, give us the grace to learn from those lessons. And if we're right now experiencing things in our marriages or families or homes, or even in this church, Lord, if there's something going on in this church that we don't know about right now, some hidden thing, some sin in the camp that is hindering 
our effectiveness for you, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would reveal it to us. That we might deal with it. Purge it out. That your hand of blessing and power will be upon us once again. And that goes for our marriages, our homes, and ultimately for our nation. Thank you, Lord. Father, we praise you for your great love. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.